on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. <laughs> As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Great preview of coming attractions there. Uh, was it just me or did Jesus sound like he had a little bit of a cold in that stuffy nose? He has been dead for three days, so we can give him a break. Hey, do me a favor. Grab your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is where we are today as we conclude this Flannel Graph God series. And uh, as you turn there, you know, um, one of the uh, kind of unfortunate things, I guess you could say, about our church is the fact that because of our size, that not everybody here knows each other. You all know me to a certain extent, but I don't know all of you, and we don't all know each other. And one of the things that that means is that when someone from this church uh, leaves to go home to be with Jesus, unfortunately, not everybody may know who that person is. And a few weeks ago, uh, that happened, and there is someone who has been involved in the life of this church for 20 plus years, but unfortunately, if you did not walk through a certain door on Sunday mornings, uh, you may have never encountered this particular individual. Uh, I'm talking today about a man by the name of Max Miller, and we're going to put a picture of Max on the screen. Some of you may not know his name, but you may recognize him. And as I said, for 20 plus years, Max was someone who was so dedicated to this church. He was actually one of our lead ushers at this church. 
which means he was one of the people that a lot of you try to avoid as you try and walk into this room. But Max absolutely loved his job. Uh, not only did he serve every single weekend, I can't think of a single weekend that he missed here, uh, but he actually often would serve at least two services every single weekend. He would usher at our Saturday night service, and then he would come back again, and he would usher here at our Sunday morning service. Now think of that. Max had to listen to me and Matthew preach two times every single weekend. The only other group of people who do that at this church are the camera operators. And if you notice, they actually wear headphones so they can't hear what we say, okay? Max loved, loved, loved this church. But to me, Max was more than just a dedicated usher at this church. Uh, I was really privileged to call Max my friend. And that's actually a really big deal coming from me, considering the fact that Max was a diehard UCLA fan. In fact, some of you may not remember or know Max's name or recognize that picture, but you may remember a man who used to walk the halls of this church with this attached to his walker. Well, that was Max Miller. But despite Max's allegiance to the enemy, I mean, despite Max's allegiance to UCLA, uh, I was very privileged to call Max my friend. And for years, for years... On Saturday afternoons when I would teach at about 3.30 in the afternoon, I would get a knock at my office door over there, and I would open up the door, and there would be Max Miller. And uh, he would come into the office, and we would sit in a couple of chairs that were there, and every single weekend before I would teach here, Max would pray for me. And I cannot tell you how many times I would enter into that time of prayer on a Saturday afternoon, nervous, anxious about what I was going to say here on the weekend, and I would leave that time of prayer full of faith and full of confidence in what I knew God was going to do. That was the effect that that prayer time with Max had on me. But I want to let you know, Max didn't just pray for me. Max prayed for many of you too, whether you realized or not. In fact, if at any time in the past, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe even full 20 years, uh, that you turned in one of those prayer request cards that we talk about here, Max would receive those and he would pray over them. And even in the last year of his life, when Max could no longer come to church, he couldn't walk, he was in a nursing home, every single week, someone from this church would deliver those prayer requests to him, and dutifully and joyfully, he would pray over every single one of them. And so when Max went home to, to be with Jesus, whether you knew him or not, we all lost someone who was very, very important to us. And because Max meant so much to me, uh, a few weeks ago, when they had his memorial service, of course I attended. And there was actually something that happened at his memorial service that really stood out to me. Uh, at the beginning of this service, there was a representative from the cemetery where, where Max's body was buried. And uh, the representative, uh, she said a few words to us. She welcomed herself and welcomed us and introduced herself. And then uh, at the end of this, she, she turned to the family. And she turned to Max's wife and her two kids who are still living. And she said something along the lines of this. She said, we are so glad that you have chosen Riverside National Cemetery as your loved one's final resting place. We are so glad that you have chosen Riverside National Cemetery as your loved one's final resting place. And I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, in that moment, it took everything inside of me not to scream out in protest, okay? In that moment, it took everything inside of me not to raise my hand like a little kid in elementary school and say, excuse me, excuse me, just so you know, none of us here believe what you just said, okay? This is not Max's final resting place. In fact, you need to read your Bible. Max is not here now, and Max will never be here. Max is with Jesus right now. It took everything inside of me not to say that. Now, 
You'll be happy to know I didn't. I do think I let out an audible gasp, but you'll be happy to know I didn't, but I wanted to. Why? Because that's what I believe. And why do I believe that? I believe that because of this story that we're looking at today. I believe that because of this final story that we're looking at today in our Flannel Graph God series, the story of Jesus and his resurrection. Today, I, I want to tell you something up front. Today, I'm going to approach this message just a little bit differently today, okay? And rather than work through this passage of scripture verse by verse, scene by scene, as I normally would like to do, instead what I want to do today is I want to use this passage as a springboard. I want to use this passage as a jumping off point to talk about why the story of Jesus' resurrection is in our Bible and why it is so important to us. And the reason I want to do that is because I am not sure as Christians, we always appreciate how John chapter 20 and the other chapters like it in our Bible that talk about Jesus' resurrection, Matthew 28, Mark 14, Luke 24, I'm not sure we always appreciate just how important these passages are to our faith. We usually only hear messages on these passages of Scripture at Easter, and it's so unfortunate. Because, because the places in our Bible that talk about Jesus' resurrection, they are the foundation of our faith. They are the cornerstone of our faith. They are the bedrock of what we believe. In fact, it is no exaggeration to say that if you were to take John chapter 20 and the other chapters like it out of our Bible, you take away Christianity. You take away our faith. You take away what we believe. If you want to know what it is we believe as Christians, it is found in this passage, in this story we're looking at today. And that's why, like I do for a lot of messages, I come up with a, I've come up with this week in a summary statement to summarize sort of the main points, the main takeaway that I want to get from this message. And for those of you who are note takers, I'd encourage you to write this down, but actually, if I could be so bold, I'd encourage you to do something a little bit different today. Rather than write this down on a piece of paper that you're probably going to throw away or lose in a couple of days, if you yourself would be so bold, I would actually encourage you to write this statement down somewhere in the first few pages of your Bible. The cover page, the title page, something like that, okay? And the reason why I'd ask you to do that is so that one day in the future, anybody who picks up your Bible, they will have absolutely no doubt as to what it is that you believe. They will have no doubt as to what it is that we believe as Christians. And so if you want to do that, you can do that. Here's the statement, okay? We'll put it on the screen. It's that the resurrection of Jesus is the event that proves our faith, demonstrates our hope, and motivates our love. The resurrection of Jesus is the event that proves our faith, demonstrates our hope, and motivates our love. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is everything to us Christians. The resurrection of Jesus is the event that proves our faith, demonstrates our hope, and motivates our love. And today I'm going to show you why I say that. We're going to begin with the first statement first. The resurrection of Jesus is the event that proves our faith. The resurrection of Jesus is the event that proves our faith. If you were here several weeks ago, several months ago now, in fact, you may remember that I gave a message where I talked about the fact that as Christians at this church, we believe that faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation. We believe that Christianity is the only faith, it's the only religion that leads to God and leads to salvation. And as I said in that message, that statement sounds very arrogant to a lot of people today. 
Uh, as I mentioned in that message, it is estimated that there are 4,200 different religions in the world today, which, as I said, means that there are 4,199 groups of people who believe differently than we do. If that's the case, in some people's ears, it sounds very arrogant for any one faith to claim that they are the only one that is true, the only one that is right. Well, what I want to let you know today is that in the ears of some people, not only is that sort of statement arrogant, but some people today will say that actually that sort of statement is impossible. That it's impossible for any one faith, for any one religion to claim that they are the only true one. After all, some people will say, doesn't the very definition of faith imply something that you believe without evidence? Doesn't the very definition of faith imply something that you believe in the absence of proof? That is the prevailing opinion in our day and age. And that's why in some people's eyes, for, for there to be a debate between religion would be like someone today having a debate as to who's better, the, the Easter bunny or the tooth fairy which is an absolutely ridiculous debate, right? Because everybody knows that the tooth fairy is better because she gives you cash, but the Easter bunny, by and large, just gives you candy. I mean, it's a ridiculous debate. But in some people's eyes, that's what a debate between religion is like. And I would imagine for some of you here today, that's what it sounds like to you. And that's why some of you are scratching your heads at the idea that I would use the word prove and the word faith in the same sentence. There's no way you can prove a faith, right? Faith is about a blind leap into the dark. Faith is based on feelings. You can't prove feelings. There's no way you can prove a faith, prove a religion. Well, actually, that's something very unique about Christianity. Christianity is uniquely a provable faith. William F. Buckley, a famous political commentator from a generation ago, he once said the following. He said, the uniqueness of Christianity is that it is inexplicably bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproved, Christianity would be false. Let me read that again. The uniqueness of Christianity is that it is inexplicably bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproved, Christianity would be false. And what Buckley is saying there is he is saying that Christianity is a uniquely provable faith. Or we may also say, actually, that Christianity is a uniquely disprovable faith. There is no faith, men and women, that is easier to debunk than Christianity. There is no faith that is easier to destroy than Christianity. There is no religion out there that is easier to do away with than the Christian faith. And the reason why is because Christianity, by and large, rests on one single historical event. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this, but if tomorrow morning we were to turn on the news and we were to see a news report that someone in Jerusalem has produced a box of bones or a mummified corpse, that they are able to prove verifiably these are the remains of Jesus. In other words, if someone tomorrow could produce the body of Jesus and disprove the resurrection, well, then you know what? I won't be here next weekend. 
and you shouldn't be here either. Because if someone tomorrow could produce the body of Jesus and deny and disprove the resurrection, Christianity is over. Christianity is done for. And just so you know, this is not, you know, the typical overstatement of a preacher trying to make a point for dramatic effect, okay? The Bible itself says this. Listen to this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. We'll put it on the screen. The Apostle Paul says exactly what I just said. Maybe he got it from me. Who knows? But this is what 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says. Paul says this. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Listen to that. And if Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, Paul says, Our preaching is useless. The last 10 years of my life that I have devoted to talking about Jesus Christ has been an utter waste, Paul says. And by the way, so is your faith. If someone tomorrow could produce the body of Jesus disproving the resurrection, Christianity is over. It is done for. But you know what? No one tomorrow is going to produce the body of Jesus. And no one ever is going to produce the body of Jesus. You know why? Because no one can. Because Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's exactly what our passage today shows us. Let me tell you something about our passage today. Let me tell you something about John chapter 20, okay? The passage that we heard a little bit earlier and the other passages like it in our Bible, they are among the most studied the most picked apart, the most poured over passages, not just in our Bible, but in all of literature, in all of history. Scholars, both Christians and non-Christians alike, both those who believe that Jesus rose from the grave and those who believe that all of this is just one big hoax, one big made-up story, they have studied these passages forwards and backwards and every which way in order to see what they can learn from them. And among those scholars who have studied those passages, these passages and taken them seriously, including those who don't believe that Jesus raised from the dead, among those scholars who have studied these passages, there have emerged several things that practically pretty much everybody agrees on. Several almost universally agreed upon facts of history that, that almost no one denies about what happened to Jesus following his crucifixion, and what happened to Jesus' followers following Jesus' crucifixion. And what I want to do right now is I want to share with you three of them, okay? I call these the three nearly indisputable facts of history. The three nearly indisputable facts of history. Why nearly? Because like in everything, there's always some people who disagree. But pretty much universally, these are agreed upon by honest scholars. And the three facts are this. They are the fact of the empty tomb, the fact of the early disciples' transformation, and the fact of the early church's message of resurrection. Among scholars who have studied this and taken this seriously, even those who don't believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus rose from the dead, these are at least three things that are almost universally accepted. The fact of the empty tomb, the fact of the early disciples' transformation, and the fact of the early church's message of resurrection. Let's go through them. First, the fact of the empty tomb. Almost no honest, serious scholar today will deny the fact that the tomb that Jesus was laid in on Good Friday was empty on Easter Sunday. Okay? Said another way, almost no scholar today will deny that Jesus' body is missing, that we don't know where Jesus' body is. 
And there are a couple of things that lead to that conclusion. One of them is found in our passage. Pick it up with me in verse 1 of John chapter 20. Look at how this begins. It says, early on the first day of the week, that's the first Easter Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So there we find the first discovery of the empty tomb. Now, to many of us here today, we read those couple of verses, probably nothing that stands out to us. But if you are a historian schooled in the first century, immediately there is something that would stand out about those couple of verses. And what is it? It would be that the first person to come across the empty tomb is a woman. Okay, That would immediately stand out to you. That according to John, the first person to come across the empty tomb is a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, why would that be significant? Well, the reason why it's significant is because in the first century, the testimony of women generally was not considered to be credible, okay? In fact, Jewish courts in the first century would not accept the testimony of women as credible evidence. They just didn't trust them in that way. And yet here we see the first person to discover the empty tomb is a woman. So what does that mean for us? Well, here's what it means. If the resurrection of Jesus was one big hoax... Okay, if, for example, the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus and then they came up with this elaborate tale about a resurrection, an empty tomb, and all that sort of stuff, if they wanted to come up with a story that would have been credible, they never would have included the first witness being a woman. No, the first person in a credible story in the first century, the first person to discover the tomb would have been one of Jesus' disciples, John or Peter or somebody like that. Never in a million years would they have thought to, to have the first person to, be, to discover the empty tomb be a woman? And yet that's exactly what we see here. So how do we make sense of that? Well, the only way to make sense of that is what John and what the other gospel writers are doing is they're merely retelling events as they actually happened. And as much as maybe they would have wanted it to be another way, they could not deny that the first people to discover the empty tomb were female, were women. And so that one little detail alone lends to the truthfulness of the story. But there's actually a bigger detail that lends to the fact of the empty tomb, the truthfulness of the empty tomb. And that is this. It's that not even Jesus' enemies could deny the empty tomb. Not even Jesus' enemies could deny the fact that the tomb that Jesus had been laid in on Friday was empty on Easter Sunday. You know, if, if, if my mom, right, if my mom were to tell you that I was an honest person, you wouldn't know whether or not to believe her, right? Because she's my mom. Of course she's going to say I'm honest. But if someone who doesn't like me very much, if one of my enemies said to you, you know, no matter what I think about Chris, I'll give him this. He is an honest person then you would tend to believe him, right? Well, not even Jesus' enemies could deny the fact that Jesus' tomb was empty. You know, going back to a statement I made earlier, I can imagine some of you would say, hey, Chris, you said that if we could produce the body of Jesus today, that Christianity would be over, but let's be real. It's been 2,000 years, right, since Jesus died. Even if Jesus' body still existed on this earth, it would be hard to produce it. And you're probably right about that. I'll give you that. 2,000 years later, yeah, it would be hard verifiably to produce Jesus' body. But you know what? It wouldn't have been hard for those in the first century. 
And there were some people who were extremely motivated in the first century to produce Jesus' body. Remember, there were people who hated Jesus. They killed him. There were people who hated Jesus' followers. They killed a lot of them. There were people who wanted this Christian movement to stop. And the easiest way to stop it is go to the tomb where Jesus was laid and show everybody his body. That would have stopped this movement dead in its tracks. But they didn't do that. They couldn't do that. Why? Because it wasn't there. And so that shows the fact of the empty tomb. Second fact that probably no scholar today disagrees with. Again, even those who don't believe what we believe is the fact of the early disciples' transformation. It's the fact of the early disciples' transformation. Look with me at verse 6 of this passage here. It says this. It says, Then Simon Peter came along behind him, that's John, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So there we see that actually the first of Jesus' 12 disciples to walk into the empty tomb was a man by the name of Simon Peter. And then more commonly referred to as just Peter. Now those of you who know your Bibles, and even those of you who don't really know your Bibles, you probably know something about Peter. And that is, what was Peter doing the night that Jesus was crucified? What was he doing? Was he standing by Jesus' side, ready to defend him at all costs? No, what was Peter doing? He was pretending he didn't even know him. He was denying that he even knew who Jesus was. And yet when you turn to the next book in our Bible, you turn to the book of Acts, which starts a mere 50 days after the empty tomb here in John chapter 20, you see that Peter goes from denying Jesus to being willing to die for Jesus. And not just Peter. All of Jesus' disciples go to this place where they are willing to die for their faith. How do you explain that transformation? Practically overnight, Jesus' disciples go from being the B team to the A team, from being junior varsity to varsity. Practically overnight, they go from being this ragtag group of misfits who seem about ready to abandon Jesus at the first sign of opposition to all of them being willing to be martyrs for Jesus' sake. And by the way, ten of them are. Ten of Jesus' disciples, original disciples, die for their belief in Jesus. Not a single one of Jesus' disciples denied Jesus again until the day that they themselves died. It's a remarkable transformation. And by the way, it's not just Jesus' disciples that underwent this transformation. A man by the name of James, who was Jesus' half-brother on this earth. When Jesus was ministering, when Jesus was teaching, James basically thought Jesus was crazy. He thought his brothers should be committed. He was a lunatic for the things that he was saying. And yet after John chapter 20 and the empty tomb, James goes from not only being one of the early leaders of this Christian movement, this Jesus movement, preaching that Jesus is God, but he himself ends up losing his life because of his belief that Jesus is God. Now let me ask you, what would it take for you to believe that your brother is God? Maybe he believes he's God, but what would it take for you to believe that your brother is God? What would it take for you to be willing to die for the belief that your brother was God? What explains this transformation? Fact number three, no scholar today, no scholar today denies the fact that the early church's message was focused on one thing and one thing more than anything else, and that is the resurrection. And that is the resurrection of their leader, Jesus. In fact, we have a, 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 a famous philosopher who lived less than 100 years after Jesus was on this earth. And he wasn't a Christian, but he knew some Christians. And there's a famous quote where he says, I only know two things about these Christians. One, they show remarkable sexual restraint. And two, they preach the resurrection. They preach the resurrection. 
Where did they get this message? They didn't get it from Judaism of that day. Judaism of that day did not teach that anybody would be raised from the dead before the end of time. Where did they get this idea that their leader had been resurrected? How do we account for this? How do we account for these three facts of history that even those who don't believe Jesus raised from the, was raised from the dead cannot deny? How do we account for the fact of Jesus' missing body, the empty tomb? How do we account for the fact of the early disciples' transformation? How do we account for the fact of the early church's message of resurrection? What is the most likely explanation for all of these three things? I like what this one historian says. He says, I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. You know what's so amazing about that quote? The author of that quote, whose name I won't attempt to pronounce, uh, he's not a Christian, okay? He's a conservative Jewish scholar, but he's a historian. And he has studied the, 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 the history, he has studied the details that we have, and he says the best explanation for what has happened is exactly what the Bible says. It's that Jesus raised from the dead. And that is. The best explanation for all this evidence is that what happened to Jesus is exactly what the Bible says happened. That he came back from the dead. And it's this proof of our faith that serves as the demonstration of our hope. It's this proof of our faith that demonstrates, uh, that serves as the demonstration of our hope. You know, going back to those 4,200 religions that exist today, if you study most of the major world religions, you will find that almost every single major world religions, most all of them have one thing in common, and that is they all talk about a hope for after we die. Christianity is not unique in the idea that it believes that there's something that awaits us after we die. Almost every single religion talks about some sort of hope for us after we die. But in my mind, I don't know why anybody would believe what any other faith teaches about life after death. Why would you believe what Muhammad, the founder of the Islamic faith, believes about life after death? Why would you believe what Buddha says about life after death? Why would you believe what Joseph Smith says about life after death? All their followers are, are agreed on this. They all died, and they all stayed dead. I mean, forgive the graphic image right now, but, but their decaying corpses can still be found, can still be visited on this earth. They all died, and they all stayed dead, and their bodies are still here on this earth. And not even the most dedicated of their followers disagree with that. Why would you believe what they say about life after death? I don't know about you, but if I'm going to believe what someone says about life after death, I'm going to believe the person that actually died and then came back to tell us what it was like. You see, Christianity is one of the only faiths out there that has the audacity to claim that our leader died, that he stayed dead for a few days, and then he came back to life to tell us what it's all about. That's worth our study. That's worth our attention. 
And as you study what Jesus says about life after death, you find tremendous hope because what Jesus makes clear is that his resurrection is a demonstration of our hope, that we ourselves are going to experience, if we believe in Jesus, what Jesus himself experienced. I love this question that Jesus asked in verse 15. So after the disciples discover the tomb, we're told they went back home, but Mary is still around the tomb, and she's crying. Of course she's crying. She's sad. She thinks she's lost someone that she loves, and now she's she thinks that someone has stolen that person's body. Of course she's sad. And to her, Jesus appears, and he asks this question, verse 15. It says, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Woman, why are you crying? And I think what Jesus is saying by that question is he's saying, Mary, Mary, crying is not the appropriate response right now. Grief is not the appropriate response right now because I'm no longer dead. I have come back from the dead. In another one of the Gospels, the following question is asked by one of the angels, and I love this question. The question is this. It's why do you look for the living among the dead? Isn't that a great question? Why do you look for the living among the dead? That's what I wanted to say at Max's funeral. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Max is not here He's with Jesus. He's more alive than he has ever been. He is more alive than any of us in this room. And how do I know that? Because Jesus. Because his resurrection is the demonstration of the hope that we have as Christians. Philip Yancey, the famous author, once wrote this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus hits a new note of hope and faith that what God did once in a graveyard in Jerusalem, he can and will repeat on a grander scale against all odds Death will be reversed. The event of the resurrection is the event that proves our faith. It demonstrates our hope. And then finally, the event of the resurrection is the event that motivates our love. It motivates our love. At the end of this story, we're told that after Mary sees Jesus, actually we're not told, but we're given the implication that after Mary sees Jesus, she actually tries to hug Jesus. She tries to hold on to Jesus. And Jesus gives a very interesting reaction. Verse 17, it says, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And a lot has been written over the years as to why Jesus gives this reaction, why Jesus doesn't want Mary to hold on to him. And I think the simplest reaction is the best. And it's what Jesus says here. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, Mary, this is not the time for hugs. Okay, this is not the time for sentimentality. This is the time for action. You have a mission now. I'm alive. And you need to tell other people that I have risen from the dead. And Mary, so you know, she becomes the first evangelist in Scripture. The first people to tell others about the risen Jesus. And just so you know, the charge that is given to Mary is given to us today motivated by our love for Jesus and motivated by our love for other people, we are to go out into the world and we are to tell people that our Savior is alive, that Jesus is risen. And I think as we do that, Friends Church, I think especially in our day and age, we need to be armed with more than just feelings. We need to be armed with facts. I was reading a book this past week about this trend we're seeing in churches in America today, about how younger people increasingly are leaving the church, leaving the faith. 
And this book was about the reasons why that's happening, documented, studied reasons as to why that is happening. And I think this book gave six in all, but there was one that stood out to me because it was about me and my profession. And one of the reasons that, that younger people are leaving the church today is because of us pastors. And what the book said is this, because over the years, in recent years in American churches, because of our tendency to, to, to emphasize entertainment and show and showmanship over depth and maturity in our teachings, what we have done is we have produced weak Christians. And these weak Christians have weak faith, a faith that is destroyed by one single entry-level philosophy course at a university. And out of our desire to be popular and entertaining, we have robbed people of the ability to have a solid, mature, reasonable, grounded faith. As I said, we've been emphasizing feeling over facts. And that is so tragic. Because I believe that our faith rests on more than just feelings. It rests on facts. Do you know how many people have sought to disprove the resurrection of Jesus only to end up believing it? I mean, countless number of people, countless number of people. And yet before today, how many of us would be able to really defend the resurrection of Jesus? You know, I'll tell you, as a father of three children, I get concerned these days about the world in which my kids are being raised. And I know that one of the responsibilities that I have as a father is that I need to train up my children in the way that they should go. And I believe that that means more than just teaching my kids good morals and values. I believe that that also means equipping my children with truth and facts about why we believe what it is that we believe so that they can stand against anything that comes their way. And trust me, these days there is a lot that is going to come their way. You know, we, we talk a lot. I was thinking this past week. There are a lot of people who talk today about having to move your, your faith from here to here, from your head to your heart. And maybe some of you need to do that. But I think there's an opposite move that, that is beginning to need to start happening in churches in America. And that is that we need to move our faith from here to here, from heart to head. There's nothing wrong with feelings. But as I said, our faith is based on more than just feelings. It's based on facts. And we need to know those facts to the extent that we can. And I want to let you know as a church, we want to do what we can help in that. With the help of some staff members this past week, we compiled a list of what we think are some of the best resources out there right now on the truthfulness of what we believe, the truthfulness of the Bible and the resurrection and what it talks about. And what we've done, if you go to friends.church watch and click on your Belinda where you normally watch these messages, right now at the top of that page you'll see a PDF and it lists those resources. And several of them are books and then there's also a few websites. And I would encourage you this week, pick out one of those books. Get one for yourself and get one for someone that you love. One of your kids, your wife, a coworker, a neighbor, whatever it may be. And I'd encourage you, start reading through that with them. It will strengthen your faith and it will strengthen their faith. And we'll try to keep that updated with resources as well. So that's one thing. And then the second thing I want to let you know about, and this is way off in the future, but it's going to be here quicker than you know it. On March 13th and 14th of next year, we're going to host a conference here put on by Biola University. 
and it's called Reasonable Faith in an Uncertain World. And at this conference, we're going to have some of the foremost Christian scholars and thinkers out there today talk about why we have a strong, founded, reasonable, truthful faith. And as you see, among others, Lee Strobel, the author of Case for Christ, he's going to speak at that. And I'll tell you what, you guys, I want this conference to be sold out. I want it to be standing room only, not just because you were there, but because you have invited your kids and your grandkids and your brothers and sisters and your coworkers and your neighbors, that you have invited them to here so, you, so they can hear why it is we believe what we believe. And I'm so excited about what this means for our church. And of course, you'll hear more details as it gets closer. But let me close with this, okay? Let me close with this. There is a reason why I have been passionate about this particular topic. I, I fear today maybe at sometimes I yelled at you, and I'm really sorry about that. I didn't mean to do that. I'm just passionate about this, okay? And there is a reason why I'm passionate about it. It's because what we're talking about today, this is how I became a Christian. This is how I came to faith. I, I remember it honestly like it was yesterday. I was in second grade. I was seven or eight years old. And I was at, at a Sunday school class over at EV Free Church in Fullerton. And in that particular class, they were talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And believe it or not, they actually had a flannel graph like I have right here, okay? And as they were talking about the resurrection of Jesus, they were talking about how on Good Friday, Jesus was laid in the tomb. And they took a flannel graph of Jesus and they put him in the tomb just like I'm doing right now. And then they were talking about how after they laid Jesus in the tomb, they took this big, giant, heavy stone and they covered the entrance of the tomb. And then they talked about how on Easter Sunday, some women went to the tomb. And when they went to the tomb, they saw that the stone had been rolled away and Jesus was gone. His body wasn't there. And I remember to this day seeing that image of Jesus' body having been in there, and then Jesus' body disappeared. And, and, and let me let you know, okay? I knew it wasn't magic. I knew they probably put tape on the back of it and Jesus was attached to the stone, okay? I know that. But even still, God used that. And he impressed it upon my heart. He said, Chris, this happened. This really happened. And I remember that afternoon, I was still thinking about that, and I was sitting on the floor of my living room, and my dad was there. And I remember saying to my dad, Dad, I think I want to be a Christian. And my dad, it was great. And just so you know, my, my dad's not a pastor, okay? He's a dentist. But he loves Jesus. And he knows his faith. And he said, Chris, it's really easy to be a Christian. And he basically walked me through Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And my dad said, Chris... Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Yes, Dad, I do. Chris, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes, Dad, I do. Chris, do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Yes, Dad, I do. He said, okay, then let's pray. And he took me through this prayer where I admitted that I was a sinner. I asked Jesus for forgiveness. I told him that I believed in him and I invited him into my life and that I wanted to follow him the rest of my life. And in that moment, men and women, everything changed. Nothing has been the same since then. And that's what I want for all of you. And that's what I want for the people that you love. You know, after we'd finished praying on Saturday afternoons, 
probably one out of every three times or so, Max would say to me the same thing. He would say, Chris, I don't know how anybody lives without Jesus. I don't know how anybody lives without Jesus, and I agree with him. I don't know how anybody lives without Jesus, but you know what the best news is? Nobody has to, because Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed, and that makes all the difference in the world. Would you stand with me, please, as we close in prayer? Father God, I just thank you, Lord. Um, I thank you uh, that in your wisdom, in your love, in your grace, and in your mercy, God, um, and in your justice even, that you decided to send your son Jesus to this earth, that he died on the cross for our sins, Lord, uh, but he didn't stay dead. Father, you, you rose him from the dead, God. How amazing is that? And through that resurrection, Father, you have given us proof of our faith, Lord. You've given us a demonstration of our hope. And you've given the event that motivates us uh, for love, love for other people, God. And Father, I, I pray for those who are in this room right now who may have never crossed that line of faith when it comes to you and Jesus. And God, I, I pray that you would use my words today, however flawed and imperfect they are, God, uh, to maybe just speak to their hearts and let them know, God, what, what you let me know back in second grade. This is true. This happened. And they would realize that there is a decision that needs to be made with that truth, God. Are they going to believe in Jesus? Are they going to choose to follow him? And God, I pray that you would open up their hearts so that they would believe in Jesus and know, God, uh, that what happened to Jesus can happen to them as they put their faith in him. And Father, for all of us, I pray that you would use this fact of the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection, Lord, to, to motivate us to want to share Jesus with others. In fact, place on our hearts right now, this week, someone that we can talk to, uh, to about, about Jesus, Lord, and the truthfulness of, of what we believe. And Father, I know we hear this probably every year at Easter, maybe more than that, but God, I just pray that we would never tire of this story, Lord. And that every time we hear it, we just stand in awe and wonder and amazement at what you did, all for your glory, God. And so as we sing this final song, Lord, may it come with a heart full of gratitude and thanksgiving and love for you, for who you are, and for what you have done for us. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.